Hello, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's the new film podcast from the team behind The Skinny magazine. Uh, I'm Peter Simpson, and I'm joined by Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahit Baruz. Hello. So, developments since our last episode. People listened. Yay. Yay. A development. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's listened. We now have an email inbox. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us about the show or suggest us any ideas or films we should cover, you can get us on cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. We have a schedule, fortnightly, Thursdays, probably, I think, <laughs> pending on how easy this is to edit. That's real commitment. Yep. <laughs> you know what? That's a solid schedule. Fortnightly from this week, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and... As you can tell from the fun energy in the room, we are we are all in person. Um, we are at our office in Edinburgh. We can see Edinburgh Castle out the window. Like it's right there. It's like next next door over, it's very basically. Majestic. Yeah, it's delightful. So you'll have to excuse any weird humming from what I've dubbed in the show notes as the suspicious door. Very suspicious. Yeah. It won't open, will it? It's just like a vent. And it makes a noise, which is everyone can hear, but hopefully doesn't get picked up by the microphones. Yeah. I've also just realised, well, we don't hear the one o'clock cannon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we did not think this through. Yeah, to anyone who isn't an Edinburgh person, they fire a big gun directly outside the window of where we're recording this in about 54 minutes. So, um... Okay. get recorded. So, yes, we're, um, we're all in person. We're all having a lovely time. Um, and we've been watching some films. Annie, in particular, has been watching some films. I have. Films of a very specific oeuvre, yes. I believe. Very, very specific genre, which is uh, 90s Keanu Reeves. And again, they came about because I watched all of the Matrix films really in about 12 hours to prepare for the fourth Matrix film in December. And I got really, really into Keanu Reeves. And then I was like, oh, I haven't like seen most of it. And so I like went to his back catalogue Oh my god. And there's just something about like 90s Keanu Reeves when he was like at his softest and prettiest. And the kind of that contrast between these really like quite macho films that he's in, but then he's just so like harmless and sweet and really like, oh my god. Anyway, it was great. I watched Speed, which I don't know if you guys have seen Speed. Speed is a masterpiece, it turns out. Um, I watched it in bed on Christmas night once I'd like escaped from my family was great, um, really ridiculous, really stupid, but felt like very tangible in a mm. way that like action films just aren't anymore. Like the explosions felt real, the cars felt like the metal felt real. It was really great. And then I watched Point Break, um, which, oh my God, that film. It was so good. It is a romantic comedy, which actually really fits in really well with the theme of this episode. Um, but it's just a romantic comedy about these two surfer dudes that can't be together. <laughs> and there's like this erotic charge between them the whole time. There are like these like rom-com scenes where they walk each other to like each other's cars. There's like weird kind of almost post-coital scenes, but they're not after that. Oh my God, <laughs> such a great film. Anyway, so I've been having yeah. a great time. I think it's saying we should do a podcast all about Keanu Reeves, yeah. basically. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he did redefine, so yeah, he, re- he revined the... <laughs> the action hero in the 90s because mm. until then you had Schwarzenegger yes. you had Kurt Russell Bruce Willis these kind of macho yeah. meatheads and then you have this like you say soft pretty boy who's just amazing and yeah. like uh, yeah he totally changed the way we think about uh, yeah. leading men yeah exactly and like he's doing all of these kind of right after My Own Private Idaho which I also rewatched and just became one of my favourite films 
Um, and so he's bringing this like quite queer energy as well to it. Like mm. it's kind of really subversive. I know I had like such a great time. I have watched them speed and point break just through January because obviously January sucks. Um, I did just rewatch kind of on loop, just like little bits of it every mm. now and then. It was really nice. Anyway, so that's been my that's been my experience. But it's also action heroes that women can get on board with. You know, like yeah. Yeah. you know. Let's face it, Arnie and Stone were for the guys. It's for like, oh, I want, that's their ideal of a perfect man. Whereas Keanu, I think, is many women and also many men's idea of a perfect man. So, yeah, it's a, an interesting interesting set. It is. Because, Peter, you watched the new Matrix. Yes. Also. So I had an interesting time watching the new Matrix because I went to the cinema to see it and was having a, an okay time. And then the fire alarm went off 25 minutes before the end of the film. <laughs> so I haven't seen the ending of it. Yeah, Do you know what happened? I have a sense in that we went to the pub and I looked it up on Wikipedia, like the professional yeah, that's that I am. Um, but yeah, I thought that some elements of it really were really good. I really liked the way that it talked about what franchise cinema and like doing fan service kind of is, what point of it and like how it actually functions. I just miss the very wushu inspired, like classical, um, like martial arts stuff from the first, I mean, really the, the all of the original Matrixes have that same energy to them in the fight scenes where it feels quite like kind of deliberate and even when Keanu Reeves is fighting a hundred Hugo Weavings that it still feels quite kind of balletic whereas there's just a scene that really kind of summed it up in the new Matrix where they're having a fight on a train and it's very kind of chaotic and there's people everywhere and then somebody just gets thrown out of a window like <laughs> feel, like you would throw like a bag of laundry across the room just like hoid out this window and it's like that's not what I want from the Matrix yeah no, not, that that's fair. not my Matrix <laughs> I will say I think yeah I completely agree with you but because I had watched the other two so the second and the third one for the first time hours before the, I went to see the fourth one and they're just there are so many robots in those there's just so much like they're kind of in space but they're not really in space and just like yeah the kind of Oh, like almost like metal core of it. I don't know. I really, I found that much harder to engage with. Hmm. And so then this one, at least, even though I agree, it doesn't have the same level of choreography, but the way that it wasn't just a lot of spaceships firing at each other, that felt like a step in the right direction. It felt like the closest thing to the first Matrix that has like existed since the first Matrix, which I did appreciate. Yeah. Um, and then the only other thing we have on this section before we move on to the main reviews we're going to talk about, uh, it just says Belfast is not good. Anna Heat and Jamie discuss. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, it's Oscar season, isn't it? And it's, it's that time of year where you're trying to catch up with all the films that are in contention. And there's always one absolutely shonky film that for yeah. some reason the critics have got behind and said this is going to be best picture. And this year, of course, it's Belfast. And yeah. what's, what is going on? It is such a thrown together... I mean, let's be fair. I kind of like Kenneth Branagh. Mm-hmm. But he's not a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> and his films is nice enough. It's, I smiled a lot while watching his films. I can smell an inside type movie, not laugh out loud. But it's, 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 it's a shambles. It's, it's badly choreographed. The acting uh, has something to be desired. Yeah, and I, I just thought this cannot be held up as the pinnacle of filmmaking in 2022 it just can't no no and yeah you're right i don't even know if it's the critics necessarily as much as like the voters of the award season just really get behind like one mediocre if you're lucky it'll just be one one mediocre film a year and this really is it 
for this year and I don't I don't understand it either like yeah I mean to be fair yes there are some good things about it I think like it's it's clearly made with a lot of love and I think you can feel that and that is like you say it's nice like there's a kind of warmness to it and you can kind of get on board with that I think it evokes quite nicely the sort of like everydayness of these people's lives it's about like a family in Belfast um, in the 60s and it's just like quite small and quite intimate in that way and it does that you know the kind of kid running in between like different families and friends like it does that quite well but everything else is just it's not great like the kid is really over directed I don't want to say he's a bad actor because I don't know like we haven't seen him I think this is his first film it just feels quite mean to say but it does feel like he yeah that his emotions are always like very big, very overblown. And I think Branagh is, like, anyway, quite a stagey director. Um, and so it's just it's just too much. Mm. And then I think for me, it was just shockingly apolitical for a film about this subject matter. You would, coming away from the film, you'd really be like, ah, oh, these people just can't get along. And mm. isn't that a shame? And it's like, you know, there are kind of soldiers in the street and it's never like, why are there so Like, it just never gets into all of that. And I just thought that was, oh, I just don't think that's really acceptable. Yeah, um, yeah I had, like, big problems with that. It feels to me that it was written and shot in one weekend in mm. Ken, Ken Branagh's garden or something like that. How's that feeling? <laughs> He's invited his pals around. He says, let's make a movie. This was fine. <laughs> Did that scene work where Jamie Donner has a standoff with the, the IRA? Uh, no, it didn't work, but, you know, let's go on. We, we've got dinner to get in an hour. Let's, let's just get, that's what it feels like. It feels really rushed. Yeah. Um, it feels like no one has really been that well directed. I mean, think about Kenneth Branagh. God love him. He is a very big actor. You know, when he's playing like Poirot or he's playing a character from Harry Potter, mm. he's, he's, he's huge. He, he doesn't do small, uh, subtle stuff. And he has passed it on to his actors and, and he's yeah. encouraged people like Dame Ginny Jens to really go for it. You know, she feels like she stepped out of Mrs. Brown's Boys. She is like the most cliched <laughs> Belfast granny I've ever seen. And then this poor little kid is, is just been encouraged to be so cute and so not like a kid in real life, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm going to say it's a lovely film to watch if you just want to have a, like a brainless look back at the troubles or whatever. Or, or, but, but if <laughs> you... doesn't. I mean, yeah. You if know. you want to watch a film... Cold Belfast, set in the mid to late 20th century, which does nothing to interrogate the politics or the yeah. on-the-ground situation of Belfast yeah. in the mid to late 20th century. This is the film for you. You yeah. can have that quote. That's the Sydney Skinny sc That's seal of approval right there. There we go. It feels like a film for the English, which I just don't think. <laughs> There's your quote. <laughs> Get that on the post. <laughs> it just doesn't feel like a good thing. Do they yeah. need another one? Dare I ask it? <laughs> <laughs> the tagline yeah. on the poster. So, as Anne kind of alluded to earlier, the kind of overall theme of this episode is because it's nearly Valentine's Day. It's the most yeah. romantic time of year, uh, <laughs> says in the notes. Um, we're talking generally about kind of romance and love in film. And the two films we're reviewing, which are both out this month, both kind of deal with that in quite different ways. First up is Souvenir Part 2. So this is the new film from Joanna Hogg. Um, it's the follow-up to The Souvenir Part 1, which came out in 2019. 
and it follows Julie, who is a young film student in 1980s London, who becomes entangled in a kind of very kind of chaotic and difficult relationship with an older man, which is quite fraught mm. um, and quite a kind of like difficult story to see unfold. I think, like, for me, Joanna Hogg's films are ultimately about class. Mm. And I think that's kind of what... She's very granular in her approach to that, which means that her stories are often very simple. Like, mm. you can reduce them down to, like you say, like, it's this young girl and she falls for, like, a slight... I mean, he's not, like, ages, ages older, yeah. but, like, slightly older man and there's this kind of power dynamic. But the thing is, this is, like, a girl from the upper middle classes. She has this swish Kensington flat... And so over everything, there's this kind of air of repression and this air of like the stiff upper lip and making do. And I think her films show how basically that is never good enough. And when it comes to, you know, the vulnerability of intimacy, of desire, of all of these various things, that kind of really rigid way of behaving that the class system in Britain teaches you is always going to cause, is always going to fracture things. And I think she does that really, really well. I, yeah, when I saw, I did like the first one when I first saw it, but it was really watching the second one that made me really love them both. Um, I think they need each other to kind of come into their own. I think the formality and coldness of the first one where she's going through this relationship and she's kind of trying, but she doesn't really know what she's doing and he's kind of flitting in and out and... It's all so violent, but it's also so muted, and that just makes you feel so discomforted the whole time. I think that kind of formality and coldness only really makes sense within the kind of unboundedness of this one, like the complete devastation that she feels and the way that actually suddenly all of these boundaries kind of fall apart. And similarly, kind of its looseness needs the repression of the first to make sense. Like you need to kind of see them as like playing off each other. Hmm. I thought Honest Winton Burn is amazing in it I really just cannot believe that she's not that these are really her first films that she's ever done and I don't even know if she's gonna maybe do any more but kind of thinking I mean it's not really a fair comparison but kind of thinking about yeah some of the very stagey performances in Belfast this is so natural it's so earnest it's so and you kind of see this almost improvisational quality and this kind of trust between her and Joanna Hogg I think which is really beautiful I also really love it in the theme of this podcast as a relationship film. I think it understands that relationships are never kind of bounded to the time that you're with someone, that the aftermath of a relationship is very much part of the relationship itself. And so the way that it kind of sits within this wreckage and it gives it time and it gives it attention, it gives her feelings attention as much as it does when she was with him, I think is a really wise understanding of how we interact with people and how intimacy is formed. Um, so yeah, I really loved it. Um, I don't know what you thought, Jamie. Well, for me, it's, it's so rare to see a filmmaker like Joanna Hogg and a chance to just, you know, who, who makes these kind of small, really idiosyncratic films, mm. you know, to get a chance to make a sequel is actually pretty rare. So yeah, I love the fact that she's taken these characters who are really fascinating. And it could have ended there, but she's she's given us, a, uh, you know, the follow-on. Um, and I think it does what great sequels do. It, complements the first film but it is its own thing it's very different um it's it builds on all the ideas and emotions in the first film but it takes in, in different and surprising directions like I, that's what i liked about it i think the first film you can kind of see where it's going it is a kind of tragic romance you know you can you can see there's going to be a peak and a fall whereas this one surprised me constantly and that's one of the reasons i really liked it and i was going to say if you're going to make a i've got a kind of crackpot theory 
if the souvenir is alien. You know, this, this is, you know, if Alien is Ripley up against one alien who who wears her down, uh-huh. this is the sequel. This is this is Ripley against lots of aliens and, and it's her coming into her own. So uh, in the first film, Julie, is, is this tragic romance. Julie um, is, her, is her first kind of real relationship and it's, it's her kind of working through that. And then in this one, spoiler alert, her her boyfriend Anthony's no longer around, and she's mm. dealing with the aftermath of that. But it's her working through, you know, the other men on the horizon. She, there's a there's a a lovely scene at the start where she meets up with a young actor mm. um, who's played with Charlie Heaton, and it looks like oh, we're going to have another meet cute. This is this is how she's going to get over her relationship. She's going to find a new man. But actually, the film completely undercuts that idea because despite them meeting in the most romantic way possible in this film set against this beautiful matted painted background and you know shot in silhouette it looks so romantic the next scene he's chapping on her door at midnight wanting to have sex and you have the most awkward sex scene and i think you see a, a young woman realizing actually men are a bit shit <laughs> and, and actually i need to i need to sort i need to have other things in my life so you see julian come into her own in terms of art you know and it's, it's very much a film about i think about how art can not only help you work through grief but kind of revive you and it's working through trauma but also coming into your own as a person and i think that's for me this is more of a coming age film if the first film's a romantic movie this is more julie mm-hmm. finding herself and i really like that it's also a brilliant sort of lampoon of the british film industry that's what i really liked about this the first film there's a bit of that you know in the first film we know that julie's making this very sort of dark social realist film about sunderland dockers and we know that's completely ridiculous because Julie's not from that background, as you say. She's this kind of posh upper middle class girl. And here she wants to make a more personal film. But when she goes to her professors to ask to do that, they say that's the wrong thing to do. So it's, it's this idea that to make a British film, you have to make one type of film. Mm. And all her professors who are these kind of older men say, oh, you should stick with your original idea. Do this Docker film because that's, that's more real. But actually, more real for Julie is making this art movie, which is going to become this kind of a memorial to Anthony so yeah that's really interesting and it's, it's, it's I guess Joanna Hogg saying to the British film industry don't put me in a box you know I think maybe and a lot of filmmakers have been in this position where they've been told you can only be one type of filmmaker and one thing that's not actually addressed in the film is Julie's privilege that she can break out of this because the fact is Julie gets told you can't make this movie you can't make the movie you want to make you're, you're off the program but what happens is Julie just goes to her mum and asks for 10 grand and yeah. she gets to make the film she wants to make. So that is actually quite interesting. And it's never quite spoken out loud, but because basically we should say that um, Julie is basically Joanna Hogg. It's, it's like a rough, roughly autobiographical film. You know, it's, it's about how she kind of beats that system and beats the patriarchy and shows that actually I'm going to make the type of film I want and be the filmmaker I want. It doesn't actually address the fact that she had the opportunity to do that because she comes from this, this class. So yeah. Uh, so that is maybe one issue I have with the film is that it doesn't really address Julie's privilege. But yeah, I think she has like quite particular critiques that she makes. And I think those critiques are very important and they have their place. But I think she is very much working, kind of ironically in a way, because that's what um, Julie's whole thing is, right? Of like you say, that original film about dockyard workers that she wants to make isn't in her wheelhouse. And I think Jana Hogg is also very much working within her wheelhouse. And I think what she does with that is very important, but I don't think it's comprehensive. Mm, I agree with that. Um, I was going to say, one of my favourite, well, I think my favourite scenes in all the film are the ones on the film set. Yeah. Um, because I think it's really smart about how working through the grief and working with the actors, mm-hmm. Julie kind of starts to realise, 
and see the kind of relationship you had with Anthony mm. in a different light. Because what happens is the actors keep asking for notes. They keep asking, Julie, why did you act like this when you saw that Anthony was taking mm. drugs in the bathroom? Why did you not talk about the things? Maybe Anthony was having a cry, cry for help, you know? And it's, it's how that if you start to work through and start, you know, I, th I think everybody finds this, if you start to write about something, if you keep a diary, you know, you start to see um, your life in a more objective way. And I think that's what happens to her. And, it's, and I guess it shows the power of art and it's how, yeah. it, that's why it is so cathartic mm -hmm. that you can uh, use it to explore your life. But it's also, it's, it's a great film because it's got, you know, we see the film within the film as well and that's really rich. So if you've seen the original film, you see how she's worked through it in a very artistic way. Um, but it's also very meta because Joanne Haug is doing the exact same thing with the souvenir. And I love I love that interplay. And it's in, in that way, I think some people have went against the film. I've seen a, a few people say the film's a bit up his own arse mm. because it is so meta. But I that's one of the most enjoyable things about the film, I think, is the way it's a filmmaker working through her own past, showing a filmmaker working through her past. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved all, I loved all the scenes. And that really is like the main tension in this film, right? Is kind of constantly the other people that are working on the film, like Harris Dickinson, which it was so lovely as well to see Harris Dickinson. Um, like the kind of little parts in this film are just really joyful because they're some of the best, like, you know, cool up and coming uh, actors that we have working at the moment. Um, but yeah, the way that they keep trying to break it down. And I think you're right. It is about like the power of art and how that can be cathartic. But I think it's also like the limitations of what narrative can convey that like this idea, you know, which like obviously is kind of talked about a lot that, you know, why didn't you leave this idea around toxic relationships of where well, you could see it was bad. So why didn't you leave? And that is such an easy thing to kind of work through when you're within like rigid narratives and you can like direct the scene yourself and you have this objectivity, but it's obvious why she didn't leave, right? Like how can you in that situation, you are bound to someone. And I think that was also very smart in that it is someone trying to take control ultimately over a situation which you can't control. And that tension I think is really rich in the film. Yeah, there's lots of, I mean, there's also got an amazing soundtrack full of like mm -hmm. these deep cut, uh, 80s pop songs. It's got an ending. I think the ending is one of my favourite endings of a long time. The final word is fantastic. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to like. And I think even if you're cold on the first film, I think maybe... Yeah. I, I found... I think what I my issue with the first film is Julia is such a meek character. Mm. And she's kind of frustrating in the fact that she does pursue this relationship with Anthony. And it was nice to see her kind of be a bit steelier here yeah. and kind of yeah, be a bit tougher and, and sort of find her own way. And I, yeah, I think I think I kind of enjoyed watching her more in, in this one. And it's funnier as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's out on the 4th of February. Uh, you can watch The Souvenir Part 1 on the iPlayer just now on oh, BBC. So if anyone needs to get caught up on their souvenir <laughs> lore, it's on the iPlayer just now. And then Souvenir Part 2 is out this Friday. It's out tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, 4th February. Oh, actually, I mean, this is going to be, I've just remembered, so this is not going to be very detailed. But I think if you're in Edinburgh, the Picture House, the cameo, is doing a screening of it at some point. I did not, this is not scripted, which is why I can't remember, but I think at some point this week, and there's a Q&A with Anna Swinton Byrne, who I did the interview with her in The Skinny, which is also out this month. Um, and she is honestly the loveliest, kind of most effusive person and loves talking about the role. So I can't remember what it is, but if I you remember. I think it's Sunday. It's Sunday, there I'm we gonna go. I'm going to cut in the day that it's on. It's on. I'm going to edit it in. There we go. Yeah. Um, cool. So that is Souvenir Part 2. 
next thing we're going to talk about, um, which deals with a lot of similar things, but in a slightly different way, is Ryosuke Hamaguchi, the director of Drive My Car's new film, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy. So this is three kind of short dramas about three very kind of different relationships. So you've got this sort of like asynchronous love triangle between this model, her ex, and one of her best friends. You have a woman who is trying to honey trap a French professor on behalf of her uh, kind of younger friend with benefits after he kind of runs afoul of this professor. And then the third part is about a woman who is trying to reconnect with someone from her high school reunion, but without wishing to spoil anything, things are not as they initially seem. I My first thought when I came away from watching this, and I've written it down in the notes, is truly, it, whatever it is, is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the thing about this film is that all three parts of it have this kind of like romantic energy and a lot of kind of romantic tension in them in their own way, but they often have kind of strangely twisted and like odd dynamics between the people who are involved. There's a lot of long, kind of languorous scenes that are both intimate and confrontational, which is the combo that you always want. It's, there's parts <laughs> of it that are the equivalent of how, when you sit down to have a meaningful conversation with somebody and then it goes on and things just get kind of unpicked and things kind of unspool. And there's one particular scene that's almost the first scene in the film is this long cab journey between the model and her kind of work colleague. And they're in this car, just one basically unbroken dialogue scene for I think it's it's about like 10 minutes, is it not? Mm, It's a long time. And this thing just kind of like unfurls over time. And in in the way that kind of one of those conversations does it kind of loops back to these kind of key things of like oh well do you think this thing this relationship with this guy is going to go anywhere and like oh why didn't you do these things when you could you know it does a really good job of creating these different ways these different kind of forms of intimacy between the characters in each of the kind of three parts of the film so if you like having long conversations and feeling (laughs) slightly frightened about where they're going this is a film for you but if you take that scene what i love is you've got that very long scene um, in the car and then it shoots off in a completely different direction. I felt yeah. this film did that constantly. It would set up something that's maybe a cliche of like, you know, something we've seen before in other movies, you know, so like a honey trap or a, a, or meeting an old friend and then it would take it in very unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I really loved that. To me, it's just a really good film about people talking in rooms, you know, like, uh, which sometimes you actually, you just don't get that often. It's, it's just quite nice to watch a really well-written film with great performances where the filmmaker is confident enough just to hold on the actors. And, and the filmmaking is quite sort of simple, rather unflashy. Um, he tends to prefer these kind of longer kind of two shots. And I, I really like that. Um, the third section is perhaps the most emotional, but I really love the second section, which is uh, so uncomfortable to watch. It's like a like it's a construction plot where, like you say, this this young woman, well, this older woman actually has, has been asked by her, her young lover to seduce her professor. And the way she chooses to do it is through his own writing. So he's got this kind of sex scene, which would have won, won the the Guardian Bad Sex Award, you know, ten times over, um, and she, and she kind of reads it out to him, and the film just plays out in a very kind of weirdly, very cringy, but also quite erotic way, in the way that these two seem to fall in love in this in this scene, and it's and I, I, yeah, it's kind of mesmerizing really, and I've never quite seen a film like it, and I think yeah, you seem to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, no, I'm glad you got something. I thought it was. 
so funny. I could not oh, take yes. it seriously. It's hilarious. I felt like a fucking child. Because, like, he's just, yeah, it's a story about someone, that, that, like, a lot of detail about testicles. Like, my God, was that necessary? And, like, it just kept going on this guy's face as this woman is reading his story out loud to him. And he just has the most, like, impassive, almost, like, kind of the quiet eye emoji face where he's just, like, staring into deep space. I just, I could not, I could not handle it. I really could not handle it. I thought it was so strange. And I don't really understand what it was trying to do. Like, I think it didn't, the first, the first one and the last one, I think, were types of intimacy that I could understand. The second one, and yeah, I think it was like playing with various ideas of like, temptation and seduction but I think it comes to like I find Hamaguchi stuff I think a bit hard um and I felt this way about Drive My Car as well because they are in story so raw and so vulnerable and so intimate but they're also very mannered Mm. and they're very strangely controlled and almost like rigid and staid and I find that and it's Definitely a deliberate tension, but I find that tension quite hard. I, I get the impression he's, in, uh, he's influenced by Eric Romare, you know, so it's like mm. a bit like, it's these kind of comedy of vanners that he would do, and they're often centred around sort of serendipity or coincidence mm. or, um, you know, miscommunication in some way. Uh, and I love all that. I find I just find them really satisfying, like really good short stories in the way that they, they just, and it's such a concise, you know, half an hour 40 minute time frame mm. they can tell a whole world and I felt like every character had a real kind of rich ba- back history you know just because yeah. the performers sort of yeah everything felt rich it felt like oh they have a history together you know they have um yeah they have an inner life you know and I, I like I say I really love the third, third one it's the most expansive it's the one that's maybe the least the least claustrophobic and then it happens yeah. in a few spaces mm. um but it went in very interesting directions and again it's a it's a film that's one about memory it's about sort of uh how your memories don't always match up with expectation and how di- people, two, two people can have very different memories um and and it also has a kind of little, little twist and, a, and again a final ending it ends in just the most perfect little yeah. grace note mm-hmm. uh, i realized i haven't written down the release date so yeah. i will just uh, cut it in afterwards i believe it's out on the 11th of february excellent there we go good stuff <laughs> Just before Valentine's Day. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect timing. So the main thing that we want to talk about today, on account of it being February, the most romantic of all the months, um, is romantic comedies. So, Anahit, if you want to go first, kind of what's your relationship to the romantic comedy genre? How do you kind of feel about them? What are your sort of like favourite things about them? So I love romantic comedies. I love them so much and I am so happy that they have been given a real renaissance in the last like what three four five years a lot of which I think came from like Netflix and that kind of streaming service and the way that it could make a like slightly smaller budget rom-coms I am to be crystal clear not talking about the likes of the fucking Christmas Prince or whatever. Um, I'm talking about the likes of things like Set It Up to All the Boys I Loved Before. Uh, these ones are actually good. Um, and I love that, yeah, it has had a real renaissance. And I think with that, there has been real attention pa- paid to what makes them good um, in a way that goes just beyond when I was growing up, this idea that either they're like films for girls, there was like a real gendered conversation around it, or that they're kind of fluffy easy watching that kind of again like denigration of um the genre 
I think what I find really interesting about them is that they are, I can't really think of another genre, and maybe that's just me, maybe you guys have ideas, but I can't think of another genre that is so formative to the ways that we live our lives and to the ways that we conceptualize an enormous part of our lives, which is our romantic, sexual, intimate, kind of affective behavior. It's really difficult for me to think of another genre that from childhood, from like, you know, the Disney films that you watch, teaches you a lot about how, like the politics of how you interact and how you are made vulnerable to other people. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, this idea of how do they teach us to behave? We talk a lot, and again, this was a lot when I was growing up about how they teach women how to behave. And there was there's always this kind of like trope of like, oh, you think your life's a rom-com, but life isn't a romantic comedy. Relationships are serious. And I think they do kind of definitely have that effect and that's something that you have to navigate. But there's also something really interesting about how do they teach men how to behave? What do they teach them about like different types of pursuit, aggressive behavior, about the ways that they can be vulnerable? And I think that is like a real politics to them about, yeah, what kind of relationships do we value? At their heart, I think there is just something so warm and nice about watching two people fall in love. I think, you know, that is ultimately what it comes down to. And I think for me, what makes a really good romantic comedy is they need to have chemistry and you need to not hate the idea that they end up together. And I think that's where a lot of the romantic comedies of the 90s and noughties, which was a terrible time for feminism and women, like truly abysmal, that's where they fall down because these couples are awful. Like they're truly some of the worst people you've ever seen in your life. And they're so bad for each other. Like things like I'm thinking the ugly truth. Um, what's that awful, awful one with Matthew McConaughey? How to lose a guy in 10 days. Is it that one? Yeah. Oh my God. What are those? Like these people are awful to each other. The very idea of, there's always this idea built in of they are trying to resist. Like the man is trying to resist being intimate. And again, like what does that kind of teach us about like how we respond to these relationships that are going to be formative? Most people are going to be in a relationship through their lives. If they're taught that it's something that is emasculating or what what does that say? And so I think for me, like it really does need to be that you need to be able to like root for these people. And I think within that then there is a real politics to that of how is it breaking down ideas of gender, ideas of masculinity? What kind of couples are you allowed to see fall in love? But is it only straight, white, middle-class couples? How is like cinema breaking that down? So yeah, I think that's such a rich genre. And I think they've really been, because again, of the, like this gendered idea that the quote-unquote chick lip of cinema, we just haven't been paying attention to them. Yeah, those are my thoughts. <laughs> I love romantic comedy. <laughs> I guess my issue is, I think it's maybe a problem where everyone talks about genre. Mm. Because what happens is you start to put things in little boxes. And I think Hollywood does this as well. So like, whenever any genre takes off, what Hollywood instantly wants to do is remake that film or try to yeah. recreate the success of it or essentially make the same money that it made. So, for example, when Halloween is made in the 70s, what you get in the 80s is a whole succession of slasher movies trying to ape it and and continually getting worse. You know, in the 50s you had the boom of the musical, but then by the end of the 60s you had things like Dr. Doolittle and these terrible, terrible musicals, and the musical died. The same in the Western. The Western was huge in the 30s and 40s, but eventually, again, it got tired. And I think in the 90s and the 90s we saw that 
with romantic comedies. I think when people talk about romantic comedies, they do think of that kind of very mainstream American yeah. romantic comedy, the kind of Nancy Myers mm. style film. You know, they probably imagine, you know, Julie Roberts or Sandra Bullock. Some of these films are great, but the problem is, like any filmmaking, a lot of it is bad. And that, that, that you're right, that was a kind of period where we had a lot of kind of very generic, very uninteresting mm. films. But my feeling with romantic comedies, and I should say I love romantic comedies, I feel every era has great romantic comedies, you know, and there's always filmmakers who are have something interesting to say about romance and intimacy and, you know, two people finding each other because it's, you know, it's a human, you know, it's a human thing that ha happens to everyone. So, of course, it's one of the most universal subjects. So, of course, you see it in all um, eras of cinema, you see it in silent cinema and you mm. see it now. So you can look back at the 30s and you have the screwball comedies, you know, these amazing, zany, exciting movies which uh, said a lot about the time, they said a lot about the power dynamics between men and women. Mm -hmm. um, you can move into the like 60s, you have people like Billy Wilder who takes that on and, and starts to work in more sexual politics and sort of uh, the relationship between men and women at work and, and things like that and things like, and things like the apartment. You, now, this is uh, one character who maybe we don't want to bring up because he's got a, yeah he's not the, the best guy in the world. In the seventies, Woody Allen did something different. And say what you like about Woody Allen, he's you know obviously we cannot celebrate Woody Allen, but he did sort of change the round of comedies again with a film like Annie Hall, which which gave us a really interesting female lead, you know. And then and if you go into the eighties, there's there's more examples. James L. Brooks with like uh, uh, Broadcast News, you know, something like that, oh, or Working that Girl, yes. you know. So I feel like every generation and every every decade has great romantic comedies even now we had last month we had paul thomas anderson making licorice pizza and i think if you look outside hollywood if you look outside america you will find all these examples of great romantic comedies i mean look at hamaguchi what he's working in the, the kind of mm -hmm. genre he's working he's certainly working in the romantic mm -hmm. comedy genre so yeah i think we, it can be dangerous to narrow it down to say that you know critics don't respect romantic comedy because actually if you look through the history of film you know we have it's just yeah it's just the nature of romantic comedies that they went through a very bad period in the 90s yeah. and noughties yeah which was the emblematic of the culture of the time right they're always reflecting what is kind of the cultural understanding of particularly gender totally. at the time um yeah what you were saying about kind of yeah this idea of them moving through um the periods and it was reminding me of so there is a documentary, uh, which I have all three of us watched it. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Called Romantic Comedy. Um, that is honestly one of my favorite things that I've seen in the last few years. Um, and it's just this kind of broad documentary about the genre. But it's done this really beautiful way because it's by the lead singer of a band called Summer Camp made it. And so she has like this album of songs that she's written about romantic comedies that like plays along. It's just really like beautifully done. Um, but she talks a lot about like the ways, the history of it and how they've developed. And the screwball comedy in particular, she like contrasts that with yeah, that sort of 90s, noughties thing of how does it see women at work? And if we think of something like His Girl Friday, which is honestly, I think, a flawless film. There is There are very few films that are better than that film. The way that the female character is so capable, that she's so... It has like this almost Shakespearean, like... Um, is it much to do about nothing, that kind of repartee and the arguing mm. and the fact that these are like equals and they're matched, like well matched. And then you compare that to something like Sarah Jessica Parker constantly like knocking shit over and fucking up her job and you just think like, how did we get to this stage? And I think that film does a really good job of being like, yeah, how is 
this is not a static genre and it does constantly move with the time. Yeah. Hmm. I had a little bit of an issue with, with this film because I think, I mean, I think it's brilliantly put together. The editing hmm. is fantastic. But I think it's an example of an essay film where the filmmaker had a clear idea and then they've found clips to support their idea. So, for example, if you take what you're talking about, the klutz, mm. which, which is a trope we have in mm-hmm. romantic comedies where the woman sort of falls over. Now, you, it's true that in His Girl Friday, you know, uh, Rosalind Russell, she run, runs ring around everyone. She's the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. She's very verbal. But you can look at other romantic comedies from the 30s and find examples of the clutch. You know, Carol Lombard, for example, was an amazing physical comedian and she was always falling over and had pratfalls. And I think if you I think if you look at somebody like Sandra Bullock, for example, I think she's definitely tapping into that tradition of the, 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 of slapstick, you know? So, like, you can look at her and Julia Roberts and Julia Roberts not not falling over. So I think sometimes they were a bit... It's a bit unfair because I think... They were reading too much into some some of the scenes, and I, I felt like sometimes they were overplaying it. There's more examples. Um, <laughs> uh, for example, another example. Uh, man's come prepared. Yeah. <laughs> Love uh, to see. For it. example, there's a section of that film where it talks about the way men behave in mm-hmm. case of romantic comedies, and, and I agree that men men are trash in romantic comedies quite often. And it gives the, the example of Zach Braff and Never Been Kissed. Is that the one? Oh, the uh, last. Uh, the last kiss. The last kiss. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, where he sleeps out all night yeah, yeah, on his yeah. girlfriend's porch until she takes him back you know, mm-hmm. he sleeps there for days but then it then I feel the film sort of overplays its hand because then it shows a montage of men behaving badly mm-hmm. one of the scenes shows Jason Alexander from Pretty Woman trying to rape Julia Roberts and I feel like hold on a minute he's not the romantic lead in that film he is the villain mm-hmm. and to suggest that that film was sort of supporting his behaviour it's just not true so you've and then I start to, start to think, well, in the scenes that I haven't, in the scenes from films I haven't seen, I'm also seeing things out of context. And I started to maybe mistrust the filmmaking a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, it's, it's a very well put together documentary, but I just maybe didn't trust the filmmaker's intention sometimes. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I watched it. I, I, I mean, I like it because I like those kind of like essayistic looks at film. I think it's quite interesting that like, one of the structural kind of issues that I find when you think about rom-coms is they are often about a man kind of pursuing mm. a woman in a variety of hilarious slash slightly shifty ways. And like, there's something quite, when you're talking about, Jamie, about the thing of, um, oh, you try and like maybe bend the rules a little bit to try and make the thing that you want to happen, happen. That's in a sense like what a lot of, especially those kind of like nineties rom com shiny men, mm. like a lot of their way of their way of getting, you know, getting the goal, getting getting quote unquote the woman quote unquote the woman, um, <laughs> is is to just kind of like go around constantly flouting all kind of social and professional conventions, and then eventually having an epiphany that the thing that they decided to do wasn't the right thing to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. So this kind of like, in a way, if you really wanted to try and pick something like, um, it's maybe a bit of a stretch, but there's something quite nice in that, that like a lot of the stuff in romantic comedies is about this, especially the kind of like trad romantic comedy. There is a kind of element of a kind of back and forth and a sort of Shakespearean kind of like people are concealing parts of themselves from each other um, until eventually they reach a point where they can be more kind of honest and open with each other. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the goal that they want to get towards. 
so to have a documentary that's all about romantic comedies where there's an element of like persuasion but that ultimately it comes to this point where it says but I'll level with you I'm talking about this very specific thing from this very specific place mm. so that gives you the kind of the way to feel that kind of like openness from the person telling the story like I say could be a big stretch but <laughs> I'm will. I'm willing to make it. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and one thing. When I mean, one of the great things about rotten economies, and say what they want about um, the cliches they might continue in society, that is one of the few genres where women are almost always the lead. You know, like um, you know, Julia Roberts, Sandra Bullock. They made the fortune by being the leads in these films. Can you remember half of their male counterparts? No, they were getting paid a lot more. They were the, definitely the stars. They were yeah. kind of in control. They had star power. And while maybe looking back, some of the films aren't brilliant or they may proliferate bad ideas of relationships and, and something they have cliches in them, they are they are an example of one of the few genres where women had control and mm-hmm. they were made for women as well. So that's and that's that goes back to screwballs, you know, like like Carolyn Barr was the kind of lead in all her films. So yeah. Uh, there's good and bad with uh, romantic comedies, but I feel you have that with all genres. Yeah. I have a question, maybe to kind of wrap up the section. What is your favourite romantic comedy? Well, I really love the films of Lane May, and Mm. I particularly love her first two films, which are definitely romantic comedies, but the most twisted romantic comedies (laughs) you could ever imagine. Uh, So her debut is A New Leaf, which she actually stars in. But it's it's, it's about Warren Matthau, who's this kind of spoiled bachelor who runs out of money and he decides, oh my God, I have to marry a wife, but I don't want to have a wife. So I'm going to marry a wife and kill her. And he, he, so he finds Elaine May, who's this kind of klutzy, following the kind of uh, the theme. She's this klutzy heiress who's, who's, who's worth a fortune, but is clueless. And what happens is, he, he marries her to murder her, but because he is so protective of her, because he sees other people are also trying to take advantage of her, so her sh- her her maids and her and her butlers are all sort of ripping her off. He actually becomes protective because he says, "Hold on, that's my money. You're not going to steal it." <laughs> so so it's, it's completely twisted, but in a way he falls in love with her. Face right now. <laughs> in a way he falls in love with her because she's so useless, and he thinks actually he starts to enjoy protecting her from these people who are as ruthless as him because he can spot them a mile away. And it's a really twisted love story about how this woman finds this perfect man and this man who is basically a murderer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so dark. Um, her second film uh, was A Heartbreak Kid, which is even darker and even more cringeworthy. It's about, uh, it's about a couple who get married and instantly the man regrets it. So then on Honeymoon, he starts pursuing other women and he, he starts to go out with this 19-year-old uh, girl played by Sybil Shepherd. And again, it's, it's, it's just a really twisted look at romance. But men, I love it because the men are always terrible. And it's, it's, they're kind of, it's kind of strange to see a woman filmmaker focusing on a film on men, but she's mm-hmm. basically showing that men are, are trash, mm-hmm. and, uh, but in a hilarious way. And, and they do have a kind of romantic sweet side as well. So I think they kind of work in both levels. So, so her, she's my favourite uh, filmmaker in terms of romantic comedy. I'm a big fan of um, films in the genre that change the, the expected parameters of it. I mean, Juno's another one that's coming to mind as well, where Juno is quite f- kind of advanced in one thing that you would normally associate with a romantic comedy, yeah. a pregnancy, 
um, at the point where we kind of like get into the story and the kind of romance that she has with Michael Sarah, but also the kind of like weird situation that she finds herself in with Jason Bateman's character. Mm. So like, and kind of boundaries are being crossed in really inappropriate ways. And Athen offers a kind of like counterpoint to it in sweet but useless Michael Sarah character, mm. who's very kind of overwhelmed by the situation, but kind of isn't very sure what he's supposed to do. In the op- again, inverting that thing that often in especially kind of like 90s and 2000s romantic comedies should end up with very kind of sure men, sure and shiny men, just <laughs> constantly moving forward like a shark. I think it's much more truthful to show kind of romantic relationships on screen where you're not really sure what's going on. Because that's one other thing about romantic comedies, they often deal with like formative stages of relationships mm. rather than a kind of like the longevity of them there is this kind of idea of a pursuit of somebody mm-hmm. but actually like a film like Juno is quite interesting because it deals with when something is moving at a different speed than you might expect and things are becoming you know you're not necessarily expecting a teenager to go through a full pregnancy when you're out on the running track and you look up and mm. she's standing at the side <laughs> standing at the side getting hydrated so yeah <laughs> Uh, Anna, what about you? So, I, yeah, His Girl Friday, I think, is a perfect film. Like, absolutely perfect. Um, in terms of that sort of, like, classic rom-com, I guess in that sort of almost, like, Americanized structure of it, have you guys seen the film Only You from the 90s? No. I don't think I have. Oh, my God, it is absolutely fucking deranged. I love it so much. Me and my dad watch this film all the time, uh, which I think says glorious things about him. So it has uh, Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr. from like, yeah, I think it's from the mid 90s. So when they're both like very beautiful and very funny, it's just so lovely, Um, but also insane. Like I can't be stressed this enough. And it's about like this girl who, when she's like a young girl is, she reads on a Ouija board with her friends that she's going to marry this man called Damon Bradley one day and then flash forward she's in her like mid late 20s she's about to get married and this man called Damon Bradley calls the house um with a message for her like fiance and so and he's like oh no I'm like going to Italy tomorrow so can you just let him know and so she runs off to Italy to find him with her best friend um and meets Robert Downey Jr. there who maybe is Damon Bradley maybe not and it's just like you have never met like honestly people who have a looser grip of reality than these people um they just behave in and I kind of like that in a way because it just really leans into just how insane romantic comedies can be like the manipulation of them the kind of way that everybody is if anyone ever treated you like that in real life you should run a mile but there's just something about the fact that they kind of come together that yeah, I love it so much. It's like set in Italy. It's really beautiful. It's directed by Norman Jewison. Um, and so like it has like this kind of real like warmth to it. I don't know. I love it so much. So that I would recommend that. Unhinged. Unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> we, that's what we want. <laughs> um, okay, so I think we're pretty much done for today. So uh, it just remains for us to plug a couple of things that are coming up that we're intrigued by. Um, so Katie Go, the very fine author, uh, journalist, and our pal, um, is has, she had a book out last year called The End, which is a kind of look at apocalypses in fiction and the idea of like what they can teach you about surviving in the modern world. And she has programmed a series of screenings at Summer Hall in Edinburgh 
of films that all fit that kind of apocalyptic, speculative, disaster fiction mold. So she's picked Melancholia, Silent Running, yes, <laughs> Nausicaa, haven't seen it yet, but I, I like Ghibli, Children of Men, oofed, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which she, she I bumped into her the other day and Katie told me that she wrote the book so she could put on Mad Max Fury Road in a cinema. Oh, as she should. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we call a power move. Um, High Life, the Claire Denis film with Robert Pattinson and Andre 3000 in space. And Doctor Strangelove, which is one of my favourite films. Incredible, brilliant. <laughs> All of the Peter Sellers at once, delightful stuff. So that's running from the 10th to the 25th of February at Summer Hall in Edinburgh, and you can find all the ticket details and stuff like that on the Summer Hall website. I believe, Jamie, you wanted to shout out a kind of similar season in Glasgow. Yeah, uh, the JT are doing a really cool season on American filmmaker Patrick Wang, who is... Well, I've only seen one of his films, actually, but it's so good, I think you should see every one of them. They haven't really been distributed here. But the, the one I want to shout out is A Bread Factory, which is this kind of epic comedy set around a really sort of ramshackle performing art centre in New England. And it's it's under threat because this kind of flashy new avant-garde uh, centre is coming into town and going to eat up all the, the money. So it's, they're, they're trying to just... Uh, you know, put themselves together and sort of work out how they're going to cope. Um, but it's set over four hours, it's spread across two films, and it's just a kind of glorious celebration of people and venues that kind of enrich their town, even if they aren't putting on the best art in the world. It's the fact that they are there for their community and they have like a kid who's the projectionist who's 12, <laughs> and they have this eccentric arts teacher who's like 90 and, and, and completely useless. But it's lovely, it's, it's celebrating those type of eccentric places where uh, it brings people together. And I guess places like the GFT, you know, these sort of um, institutions which are really important to small towns, well Glasgow is not a small town, but you know what I mean, small, it's, it's very important to the community for people who love art, for people who love cinema, um, and it's just perfect that it's playing there. So Good stuff. And that's kind of mid to late February, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's playing over the weekends um, towards the end of February. Cool. So the GFT website will have all the details on that. Um, and Anahit, anything from you? Um, so I think GFT is also doing a showing of, because Peter Bogdanovich uh, died recently, very sadly, um, and they're doing a showing of his, is it 1971, three? 1970s, early 1970s film, Paper Moon, which is very charming, very funny, and would be lovely to see on the big screen. So I recommend that. Lovely things to see in a cinema near you, mm -hmm. providing that you live in Edinburgh or Glasgow. Yep. Yep, <laughs> solid. Um, and speaking of Glasgow, next time we're going to do a kind of deep dive into this year's Glasgow Film Festival programme. We're going to pick out some films that we are going to try and blag tickets for, slash go to, not to reveal too much of how the cake is made. But um, So yeah, so that's coming up in two weeks' time. So subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours to make sure you don't miss it and like leave us a nice review while you're there. Tell your friends that this podcast is good. Yes. That's an order. Yes. Um, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter all individually. Jamie, you're on Jamie Dunn Esquire. I am indeed. Anaheat is on Anaheat Ruse. Yes, indeed. And I'm on Peter Simpson with all the vowels taken out. I don't get many followers. <laughs> also, I have two letterbox followers, and that's enough for me. Is one of them me? One of them is you. Who's that the, the other one is uh, our friend and colleague, Tony Ingalls. Oh, bless. That's really nice. A sweet lad. <laughs> I will also start following you, Peter. There we go. James, do you have a letterbox? Uh, I do, but I really use it. Okay.
right. I will well. start using it just to troll you. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing as we've mentioned it on mic. Letterboxed for everyone. <laughs> right, okay, I think that's us. Yep, I will see you all in two weeks. Bye. Bye.